Good afternoon and welcome to this week's episode of the Freedom to Buy podcast presented by Supernet. I'm Joe Dworsky, the president of retail banking for Supernet, which is the only payment network that enables true credit card solutions for the cannabis industry for both merchants and consumers. Each week, our podcast will take you behind the scenes of banking, finance, payments, and technology to help educate both businesses and listeners like yourself on how to make the most of your purchasing power in the world of credit. My next guest is the founding partner of Canacore Group and PS Law Group, primarily focusing her practice on competitive licensing and compliance in the cannabis industry on a multi-state level. Please welcome to today's show, Paula Savchenko. Paula, welcome. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you for having me on today. Well, thank you for taking the time out of your busy day. I love your name, Savchenko. Can you tell us uh, what the origin of your surname is? Yeah, so we're originally from Minsk, Belarus. That's where I was born. And uh, then my family moved over to U.S. in 92, sorry, 93, to Cincinnati, Ohio. We were originally supposed to go to LA and then ended up living up in, in Ohio. Okay. And then what, how'd you get to South Florida? So we came down here every year for vacation and also a soccer tournament and to Fort Lauderdale. And I always was like, oh, I really want to live there. I love it. And I'd like really look forward to coming down here. And then one of the schools that I applied to was Nova. And then I got soccer scholarship there as well. So then I ended up uh, choosing to go here and then stayed, went to law school at NOVA as well, and then ended up staying after school. A lot of Northerners like uh, myself have, you know, migrated down South. So let's start, you know, learning more about, you know, your business and, and how you got into the business. Can you share with our listeners how you decided to focus on cannabis, on the cannabis industry and how you got started in law and cannabis law, more specifically? I started working for an administrative law firm undergrad, and they were doing regulatory compliance and licensing for several industries, um, pretty much every industry. And the partner that I was working under was mostly focused on regulated substances at that time, so liquor, fuel, tobacco. Then when I was in law school, I was like, hey, why don't we get involved in cannabis? Because I took a class that was focused on the cannabis industry. And I told that partner, you know, why don't we get involved? And he's like, look, I don't have bandwidth to deal with it right now, but why don't you get involved? So then I started going to networking events and following what was going on and just met, you know, met some of the right people and then got involved pretty quickly actually before I even, I think before I passed the bar exam, I ended up working with a couple groups on their applications for licenses in Florida. And then from there, it kind of just spiraled and went to other states. So there we did Missouri, Illinois, West Virginia. So you've really expanded, it sounds like, you know, throughout the country with your current practice. Can you, can you tell us about a Canacore Group and I guess what was the catalyst to form the firm at such an early time in your career? 
I have a really good relationship with the firm that I was with. And I also felt like I was bringing in the work and doing the majority of the work. So I just kind of decided, you know, why don't I start my own thing? And that's fully focused on cannabis. And that way I'm I'm kind of able to, you know, take on more and have more of a focus there and kind of control my schedule more than grow my team. So yeah, makes sense. That, that kind of was the catalyst. And then I would say I saved for about six months before I was able to actually uh, make the leap to go on my own. I ended up going on my own at a good time. There were several applications that were coming up uh, on the multi-state level. So when did, so, when did, when did you guys uh, start your firm? What year? February 2021. So when I started out, I would say I wanted our main, you know, my main focus to be on working with groups in the industry on multi-state expansion. So identifying new opportunities, tracking that, and then applying for licenses in new states. And we've stayed with that. I would say, you know, 95% of our work is focused on multi-state expansion with groups. We do, so the majority of what we do is, so Canacore Group is the consulting firm that handles that multi-state expansion arm. Mm-hmm. And the legal side that handles some of the legal work that's related to that and also litigation. So sometimes, so if either our clients don't get the licenses or they work with someone else and they don't get the license, you know, there's an official appeal process to go through to appeal the denial of the license. And so we handle those types of lawsuits as well. And right now we're working with a Group, two groups in Florida that applied for applications in the prior round. We didn't write their applications, but we're now representing them in their litigation, appealing the denial of the license. So tell me and share for our listeners, you have Canaccord Group and you have obviously PS Law Group. And the law group obviously handles the, the licensing, the regulatory you know, filings and whatnot. How do you work with a client uh, on the consulting side for Canaccord Group, and, and what are you offering? What types of services do you offer these clients? We work with groups that are interested in expanding in the cannabis industry. So um, basically, a group would come to us and say, whether they're involved in the industry already or not. Sometimes we work with investors, sometimes we work with multi state operators. And they would come to us and say, Look, we're looking to get involved in these kinds of markets. Let's say, you know, recreational or medical or more competitive, these kinds of markets, can you please put together a plan for us on which markets fit this criteria? So we charge to put together a plan. And then from there, we get on a call, go over, you know, what states we think would be best, and then help the client to make a decision on which states they should apply in. Then then once we make a decision, there, then we manage that application process for them, bringing in local partners, depending on the state. You know, sometimes you'll need real estate infrastructure or a lobbyist or, let's say, working with nonprofit groups. So we'll identify all of that for them, manage it, and then write the application. And then sometimes that also goes with, you know, there's some legal work that's related, like, for example, leases or operating agreements. We'll handle that depending on the client and the state. 
and then um, submit the application. And then if and when you get the license, then we work with you on the regulatory compliance side as well. We have the cannabis side, and then we also have the psychedelic side where we're doing pretty much the same thing with groups that want to apply for licenses right now for psilocybin, but eventually there's going to be more licenses. Now, is this stri- sorry, is this strictly for multi, you know, multi-state operators and single, you know, dispensaries? Is strictly that vertical, or do you also do consulting in other verticals within the cannabis? So we work with other verticals within the cannabis sector. We work with testing labs. We work with the hemp space. We work with ancillary services other than testing. I would say the majority of our client base is multi-state operators or, you know, single or multi-state operators or those that are looking to be a single or multi-state operator. But we do work with other groups as well. In terms of the multi-state operators, how many states are you currently operating in? I mean, are your multi-state operators usually domiciled in Florida and they expand or you're dealing with, you know, multi-state operators that have domiciled in different states throughout the country and then expanding? I would say both. We we have some based in Florida and looking to expand outside of and then others that are based in other states and looking to expand outside of there. How many states are you currently operating in? I mean, do you actually, yeah. Uh, so we've worked, in, we've worked in 10 states total on competitive applications. We have an 85% success rate. Right. Terrific. We're working on applications in New York and Maryland. Those are the applications that are coming up. They're going to be due very soon. We're also working on an application in North Carolina that North Carolina doesn't have, they don't have their laws in place yet, but we typically recommend for a state that's very competitive, like North Carolina, that's only going to have probably 10 licenses to get started at least a year out. You hit on the the success rate that you've had, 85%. And attaining these competitive licenses, can you share with our listeners or explain to our listeners what is competitive licensing? And what are some of the obstacles you have to, you know, overcome in terms of applying for these licenses? It's going to be different for every state, right? Like, for example, there are some states that are on a lottery basis. And so there isn't really a competitive component to it because, you know, I could put in an application that's great that if it was scored, it would get, you know, the high, really high percentile and somebody else could put in a an application that is just checking the marks. So in lottery applications typically aren't having that competitive process, but there's still some things that you can do to give yourself a better shot. For example, there's like social equity components or ways that you can get bonus points. So it's still important to work with someone that knows what they're doing on that side. And then on the competitive side, that's when I'm talking, what I'm talking about there is when there's only a limited number of licenses that are going to be given out and those applications that are submitted are going to be scored. And so for that, what people are typically looking for or what the states and regulators are typically looking for and the applicants should be including is making sure that they have strong local connections through their lobbyists, through their local partners. So 
sometimes getting like a celebrity local partner or somebody that has a lot of nonprofit or other charitable experience, relationship with a university or like really deep farmer roots, like generational farmer. You want to make sure you have that. Then agreements with schools and nonprofit groups, making sure that you've tied down real estate. So if you're applying for a vertical license, cultivation, manufacturing, and retail, you're going to need you know, ample amount of real estate for your cultivation manufacturing in a warehouse or some type of indoor structure. And then also retail, depending on the state, how many you can operate, then you'll want to identify the full amount that you can operate in that state. There's a lot that uh, goes into the process of applying for a license and getting uh, you know, a dispensary opened, it sounds like. Oh yeah, definitely. It's a lot of work and that's why we recommend to our clients to start early there's a lot of moving pieces. And and lastly, I was going to say the biggest, most important thing is to make sure that your business plan makes sense. So you want to make sure that the amount of cannabis that you're saying you're going to produce is doable in the facility that you have. And it makes sense with the patient count, that, that the prospective patient count. Based on this process that you just laid out, you know, from start to finish, what does the timeline look like? How long does this take usually? It depends on the state. I would say the minimum is about two months and maximum is about two years. So it's going to be anywhere between there. I would that's, a big, uh, that's a big spread. Yeah. yeah, it is. I would say a good sweet spot is six months to a year and a half out, like six months to a year out. I would say like ideally we want to be about a year out before we're submitting the application. Which state is has the heaviest lift uh, currently in terms of this process? You know, Florida has a pretty competitive application and there was a lot involved in it. Alabama does too. New York for the vertical licenses is going to be very difficult. And there's only five, suppose, or they haven't said for sure, but around five. I would say really any state that has like a really competitive number is, is going to be difficult. Right. Now you said New York ver- vertical license. What What can you... Expand on what you mean by the vertical license? Yeah, so there's going to be additional licenses given out in this upcoming round or vertical. Vertical means that you operate cultivation, manufacturing, and retail under the same license as opposed to just operating cultivation or just retail. And they're going to be giving out RO licenses, which are medical vertical licenses. Okay, I see. Yeah, New York, I, I understand. I mean, they came on recently, it wasn't the last year, right? But I understand that uh, it's, uh, yeah. it's, a proce- it's a process in New York, I understand. It's been a little bit of a slow process, to say the least. Is that, is that yeah. cor- correct to say? Oh, yeah. So can you expand? And you talked about the licensing process, the competitive you know, licensing. Are those all the types of licenses that are you know, in the cannabis uh, space, or are there different types of licenses specifically, you know, for different verticals, whether it's a grower or a retailer or so forth? Yeah. So there's different types of licenses. So there's, there's going to be, and, and every state's different how they deal with it. So some states that say, you know what, we only want to give out licenses that require the same business to cultivate, manufacture, retail, and transport. And there's no wholesale allowed between 
the license holders. That's how Florida is. Then there's other states like Alabama that say, okay, we're going to have some vertical licenses and then we're going to have other specific licenses that allow for people to just cultivate, just manufacture, just retail, or just transport. And so it just depends on the state. Some states even go, even have, like, for example, New Jersey has all of those types of licenses. And then within each license type, they have an allowance of, you know, you could, uh, how much cultivation space you can have. So different tiers of that cultivation license where you can only have, I think the lowest is 5,000 square feet, and then it goes all the way up to 150,000 square feet. Given the landscape today and the challenges from a regulatory perspective and just the overall economy that we're operating under, are you seeing uh, a slowdown in people, you know, wanting to get into the cannabis space and to get licensing and or just in general, people want to get into the, the space? Are you seeing that slow down as of late? You know what? I am seeing that slow down. I think, you know, or about two years ago, one to two years ago, cannabis was still the hottest thing. Everybody wanted to get involved. I think a lot of that money has dried up and that um, excitement has dried up for a couple reasons. I think a lot of people got burned in this industry. Um, You know, I think the money has gotten smarter then we're, you know, we can't really deny that we're either already in a recession or going into one. Mm-hmm. So that's obviously adjusted things. There's other, you know, there's other hot and new things to get involved in now. I think cannabis is getting somewhat commoditized. And now we have the psychedelic space that a lot of investors have moved over into that were comfortable with cannabis. And so, yeah, there's been there's been a big shift. Not, you know, but and it, and it trickles down to, it trickles from new people coming in and it also trickles to current operators because the current operators are, you know, we're going to see a big, or I think we're going to see a big M&A play here where you'll see a lot of groups get, you know, swallowed up by other operators because they just can't raise the money. It's really difficult to raise money right now. So everybody's kind of focused on, not everybody, but a lot of groups are focused on what they have and Mm -hmm. making sure that they can operate what they have well, as opposed to expand, expand, expand. And so it actually opens up a nice pathway for the groups that do have the money to continue to expand because there's less competition on the application process. I mean, in Florida, if set, if we would have had this application process, we had an application process earlier this year in Florida. And if we would have had this two years ago, I really think we would have had somewhere between 250 to 500 applications. And we only had 74 applications. Really? Yeah. And so you are, it, I mean, it's a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, regulatory landscape. Okay. And what's been going on in terms of, you know, rescheduling 280, safe banking, and how would you like to see that play out and the obstacles uh, in achieving those uh, changes? Yeah. So it's been really exciting um, for our industry to see 
these, you know, this push forward, both the Safer Banking Act and also so much conversation and movement towards a, either a rescheduling or descheduling event. As far as, I mean, obviously, I would like to see the Safer Banking Act pass. And I think that will absolve a lot of issues that we're having in the industry as we were just talking about. It's so difficult to raise money. It'll open up um, institutional banking and all that and open up a lot of, break down a lot of barriers that are just holding us back as an industry. And so that's that side. And then as far as the rescheduling or descheduling event, you know, there's so much back and forth between people in the industry. Well, what would be better you know, any movement is better, but if I had to pick one, I would say I think that um, we should probably start with a rescheduling event mm-hmm. and then have our regulations catch up to that and then move on to a descheduling event. But if I knew that there wouldn't, you know, that it would take a long time to deschedule or I wouldn't have another shot. I would say let's just go straight to descheduling and we'll let the regulations catch up eventually. The safer banking and the rescheduling or descheduling about will work together and and really help the industry. I mean, with banking, with insurance, with, you know, I'm sure you know, with payment processing, it just opens up a whole new world for us. No, I, I agree. There's been a lot of talk about 280E going away. If the DEA were to deschedule cannabis... Have you had many clients talking to you about this? So there's been a lot of talk about that. And the question is, you know, how is it going to be applied? Obviously, it will apply moving forward, but there's a lot of operators that are essentially using, so they owe hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not, in taxes to the government. And they're not paying that because they're hoping that 280E will go away or, or, or won't apply to cannabis. And then th- that, you know, the government will no longer enforce that. But I don't know if that's really going to be the case. So it's going to be a pretty interesting couple of years when we're seeing, when we're watching how that's going to play out. What are your thoughts about payments in the cannabis industry? I mean, you're dealing with all these, you know, MSOs and, and, and you know, different verticals that can use a payment solution. There are quasi solutions that are not really kosher. And there is no true solution uh, in terms of a credit card and a processor because all the majors have decided not to participate. So you have any thoughts on a payment solution for cannabis and what that would mean for the industry? I mean, if we could have, look, we like you said, we have payment processing now but then there is this issue where credit cards can't be used or if they are being used people are eventually getting kicked off it just creates another barrier that businesses in the industry are having to spend their time and energy focused on okay how do we get around this as opposed to being able to focus that time and energy on something else and if if we could have, and then they're also getting, you know, sometimes getting charged higher percentages because of the increased compliance risk that that th- this industry has. And if we could have those barriers broken down and have payment processing with credit cards and people could pay with whatever they choose, 
then I think that will, you know, it'll help the operators by being able to spend that time to focus somewhere else. And it'll also help by growing patient count or customer count and recreational markets. Mm-hmm. It will see more people be able to be involved in the industry. We're on the same page on that one. That's for sure. <laughs> you know, it's, it's an obstacle that needs to be overcome and we're, we're working uh, towards that solution. I want to take a step back. And we were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, the you're seeing the slowdown, you know, in terms of cannabis. It's not as sexy as it was a couple of years ago. Psychedelics are picking up. Just for our listeners, can you just talk about the differences between, you know, psychedelics versus cannabis? That's a great question. So when psychedelics started picking up movement on, you know, legalization efforts or decriminalization efforts, a lot of people in the cannabis industry were like, oh, great, this is going to be just like the cannabis industry. And that's not what we've seen. The psychedelic side, so let's, so just like what's included in psychedelics, right? I'm not going to list all of them, but I'll list them just so people have an idea. Psilocybin, MDMA, LSD, ibogaine, uh, ketamine, those types of drugs. So they are scheduled. However, they're scheduled. Some of them, they're able to, the way that they're scheduled, it's easier to do research on them to try to show the government why they should be legalized. And there's been a really big push from that, um, for that. And so ketamine is actually legal for certain uses. And then there's also a catch-all that doctors can use that sometimes they can prescribe it for other similar uses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how you're seeing ketamine used in these ketamine clinics legally. But basically what the industry is pushing to do is to have other psychedelics be able to be administered in the same way. And so marijuana never was, okay, this drug needs to be administered in a clinic. Marijuana was always, I'm going to buy it and take it home. Whereas these psychedelic drugs, because they, you know, researchers find that they can affect your, the way that you they're psychoactive, right? Mm-hmm. They, right. They psychoactive. So there's more, you need to have more protections around them. And they're, they are starting more fo- with more focus on the medical side as opposed to just an automatic push to recreational. Okay. That, that, that makes sense. I understand that you also serve on the board of Mr. Psychedelic Law and the Cannabis Law Accounting and Business. Can you talk about uh, these boards that you serve on? Yeah, sure. Mr. Psychedelic Law is an organization based in Florida that is pushing for legaliza- decriminalization and legalization of psychedelic. They've started with psilocybin, are working towards others, basically have drafted legislation and put that in front of the right people in Florida and other states. And and we really started that from the locality level because that's where the decriminalization starts mm-hmm. and, the, and then the legalization on the state level. 
Well, this has been a great show, Paula. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy uh, day to uh, spend 30 minutes uh, with our listeners to educate them on uh, what you're doing at Kennecourt Group as well as PS Law Group. Uh, if any of our listeners want to contact you, what's the best way for them to reach out? Yeah, sure. So my email is Paula, P-A-U-L-A, at Canna, C-A-N-N-A, Core, C-O-R-E, G-R-P, dot com. And then my phone number is 513-240-9338. And then you can also check out our website, www.cannacocoguru.com. Okay, terrific. I'm sure you'll be hearing from a number of uh, people. But So thanks, everybody, for listening to the Freedom to Buy podcast this afternoon, uh, presented each week by Supernet. You can learn more about our company uh, by visiting our website at supernet.ai. You can listen to today's show as well as past episodes of Freedom to Buy at Cannabis Radio, as well as Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please join us next week as we have our next guest on the Freedom to Buy podcast. Thank you and have a great afternoon.